Hi, I'm Sebastian King. I'm a paediatric surgeon at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Today I have the great pleasure of sitting down and talking with Professor John Hudson. John is an esteemed paediatric surgeon known internationally for many things. I have the great pleasure of chatting to John about anorectal malformations, a topic that John knows an enormous amount about. John, thanks again for Thank spending time with us. Um, I thought that I'd start with anorectal malformations, seeing you know quite a bit about that, having edited the textbook. Yes. Going back to your physical examination of a newborn girl with a presumed anorectal malformation. Okay, so the, so the anatomy in the girls is quite interesting because the perineal body often is a bit smaller relatively than it is in a boy. So I've seen lots of little girls over the years where the referral said, that they've got an anterior anus or an anocutaneous fistula, mm. when really, was it normal? And the answer is maybe, because the variation in where the anatomy, where the anus is in, the, in relation to the anatomy is a bit more variable than it is in a boy. Um, and as well, um, there are all uh, the complicated abnormalities, um, perineal groove, perineal, um, uh, you know, uh, tunnel, um, going through from the front of the anal canal into the vestibule, or we might just have the more common re rectovestibular fistula. Mm. Um, and then uh, there are perineal uh, fistulae coming through the perineal body, looking pretty similar to a boy, and what you need to do is roughly the same. I might try dilating it at first, so if I can avoid doing a colostomy or something urgent, um, if I can get dilated up easily, then I might just try and stall for time not doing the definitive surgery straight away. But, and then I might think a bit more carefully about, can I just do a cutback or do I need, do I really need a more, you know, definitive penure operation? Because I might just need a cutback. Mm. If it's close enough to the surface, if I can get into dilated anal canal, close to the skin, then I might just do a cutback, which I can often determine with the probes. Mm. So I'll put the probe in to work out, does it run up the back wall of the vagina or does it drop superficially under the skin back into what might be a relatively normal anal canal and just with a little covered up bit um, with the hole a bit more anterior so that I might just have what is effectively a covered anus with a fissure at the front end of that then I'll just do a cutback on that rather than a definitive penure operation. But if it's running straight up the back wall of the vagina, then I need to do a definitive operation and try and separate them, which, as I said, is quite difficult sometimes. You've got to really... And in the end, it's better to make a hole in the vagina than in the rectum because you can join the, rec the, I can join the vagina back together and it'll, mm. re and it'll heal by the time the, the girl needs it in adolescence. It'll have recovered completely and it'll be fine. But what's been your approach in the past and has it changed with regards to using stomas as a covering stoma for rectovestibular repairs? Well, of course, a girl with a stoma is a slightly bigger issue for a boy because there are the long-term um, cosmetic and functional issues about having an ugly scar in the left iliac fossa 
in a little girl who one day will be an adult female where this might be a serious embarrassment. So I might be trying a little bit harder than in a boy to try and fix it without a stoma. But I've got to be careful that I don't use that as an excuse to compromise the surgery in the mm. infant because the baby, we've still got to do the baby's surgery correctly. But I might try a bit harder because if I can manage with washouts, I might try to fix it without a stoma. Mm. If I thought I could do it something relatively straightforward and just have a fa fast the, the, the baby for a few days and with some intravenous um, nutrition, I might be able to get away with not doing a stoma. Hmm. Well, certainly I know that um, uh, the practice of, say, Mark Levitt or Alberto Pena has been more towards that. And, but there are many people, the majority of people, don't have their skill set or their experience. Yeah, right. And the same for you, that, uh, you know, in, in most hands, I think that oh, yeah, the covering so colostomy... Correct. So if you... If you haven't got the experience to make sure you can push to the edge, because trying to do an anorectal malformation, often no matter how simple it is, relatively, without a colostomy, is taking a little bit of a risk. And you just can only do that if you're confident that your experience and skill is commensurate for that so you can manage the extra risk, because you're taking a slightly extra risk. So colostomy is safer for the occasional player or the country doctor who finds himself in a situation where they really can't do any, that's what, they need to do something, hmm. um, that's the sensible thing to do, the safe thing. Even if, in retrospect, somebody might have said, you didn't really need a colostomy, but in that circumstance, they probably did need the colostomy because that was the safe thing to do. They weren't putting the baby's life at risk by trying to do something on the edge. Yeah. So that's quite an important issue. Yeah, and the long-term impact of the oh, yeah, wound so breakdown and the perineum yeah, can't yeah, that's be underestimated. Scarred forever, mm. mental as well as physical. Mm. The other issue in um, recto-vestibular fistula, a little girl, which is once you passed a fistula in the perineal body, is usually right just under the posterior fourchette. And the physical examination is quite important. Um, they were often pre previously misdiagnosed as recto-vaginal fistulae, mm. when in reality that's a really rare diagnosis. I've just reviewed a paper for the Journal of Paediatric Surgery where they had a few, but they had to collect them, it took them over 10 or 20 years to collect mm. a whole lot of them, mm. and they were able to, had to prove to the reviewers that they really were mm. recto-vaginal fistulae with good, you know, uh, distal lupograms to prove that it was going into the vagina and mm. not into the vestibule. But nearly always it's outside the hymen and it's just hidden under the posterior fourchette. And the secret is to open the posterior fourchette by holding the labia apart, away um, and apart from the perineum of the little girl. And then you look over the edge of the posterior fourchette and ask, can I see where the hymen is, which is usually fairly easy because the estrogenized hymen in a baby girl has a f sort of eggshell blue colour. It's much paler blue than the, than the mucosa, the sort of, sort of mucosa of the ventratus, which is sort of a pink uh, colour. The hymen's sort of bluer, but the 
opening of the fistula has 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 bowel mucosa around it, which is effectively anal canal mucosa mm. around it, just above the the part of the anus where you've got the skin. So it's sort of like rectal mucosa, and this is really easy to identify in a rectovestibular fistula because it's a different colour. It's a bright red colour rather than a sort of a light pink. When the hymen's a light blue, the, mm. the introitus is pink and the, the f opening of the fistula's got red mucosa around it, which is bingo, shows you where the fistula is. Even if you can't see the mm. hole, mm. you know it must be there because you can see bowel mucosa right there yep. by the colour. So, and then even if I can't see the fistula, I know there's a hole there, so then I just need as a lacrimal probe and or a dilators, and then I put them in and they just fall in the hole. Mm. Even if you can't see it right at the beginning, suddenly you've got a big hole when it might have looked, a, you couldn't have been in, might have been invisible, but tiny, tiny pinhole. But once I know where to put the poke, uh, the, the probe, it usually falls in the hole fairly easily. Yep. What about your experience with the diagnosis um, and early management for cloaca. So the, you, know, you said before about the, the referral that might not even be an anorectal oh, yeah, inflammation. Yeah, so that's a really common thing. So cloacal, a cloacal anomaly commonly comes with referral saying rectovaginal fistula because hmm. they can, can't see an anus, they can see a vagina, um, they might see urethra uh, or might they think they can when really there isn't because they haven't looked very carefully because actually identifying the structures in a little baby girl for your average surgeon uh, they've already got pressed biopia they're not wearing their glasses they're not wearing the magnifying glasses so that makes me uh, remember that one of the important things in the physical examination here even if you're not doing an examination under anaesthetic which is often occasionally you know you might need to do that in certain circumstance but even if you're doing it in the ward wearing your magnifying glasses so you can actually see is getting the light right turns out to be really important so you can actually see how many holes there were because if you know exactly how many holes there are it's fairly straightforward but one of the important things how do you tell the difference between a rectovestibular fistula a rectovaginal fistula, which is rare, and a cloacal, which is actually more common than a rectovaginal uh, fistula, um, is by counting the number of holes and asking, have we got a normal introitus? Is the length of the introitus normal for a little girl or not? If you get things, oh, this is a bit short. If it looks a bit short, like the distance from the clitoris at the top, uh, at the front, to the posterior foreshad at the back, is that shorter than average? It's almost inevitable you've actually got a cloacal abnormality. Um, so just looking at the length of the opening, the, of the introidal opening is often a really good clue to the fact that we've, because if we've only got a, a single opening, there's often the introidus is really short. There's only room for one. Hmm. So, so that turns out to be a useful little trick for recognizing, oh, this looks cloacal. Uh, but occasionally cloacal abnormalities, the fusion of the labia might not be, might be a bit abnormal, but it might be, so it looks a bit shorter than average, but it might be so much, it looks like a hormonal triggered 
disorder of sex development mm -hmm. where the fusion's been triggered by androgen when it's actually not androgen at all. It's actually an anatomical abnormality independent of androgen. But the labia can be completely fused to the point where you've got a pinhole in the labia minora mm. so that the introitus is completely closed down to a little pinhole. And when fast. you've got a tiny pinhole, the urine comes down the urethra into the common space, the cloacal space, but because the labia are fused together, congenitally fused, um, the urine can't come out and then the labia particularly the foreskin part of the labia around the hood of the clitoris, blows up like a balloon, looking lo very like phimosis in a baby boy, mm. okay? And can then be totally misdiagnosed as a hormonal abnormality because the blown up clitoris, which is actually just skin and a cavity full of urine, is often mistaken for, the, for a penis when really it's just normal clitoris covered with a huge sort of bag of skin full of urine. So I've got a scene of that, few of those um, um, that are effectively masquerading as a boy with phimosis. Yeah, and the parents have been told that yeah, they've got a child with a DSD who then all of a sudden being told, no, their right, daughter's right. got a so, cloaca. Well, of course, is it is a cloaca a disorder of sex development? Well, yeah, it is really. It's just not a. It's not what I would call a non-hormonal disorder of sex mm. development because clearly, cloacal abnormalities have got a very complicated uh, abnormality of the external genitalia and sometimes the internal genitalia because in cloacal anomalies, the internal genital tracts, uh, the Mullerian ducts are often not fused, so we often have a. a a, you know, a duplicated genital tract in a girl and, and, and it's quite common for one or other side of it to be blocked. So in kids with cloacal abnormalities there's a high risk of duplication, there's a high risk of obstruction so they might have hematocolpos, well described um, as a presenting feature for the cloacal abnormality and also well described as an unexpected event in adolescence because nobody's noticed that they're actually, the genital tract is in two halves instead of just all one uh, single, single uterus. And the one that you can't see, that nobody notices in the, in the baby when they present with a distended rectum, nobody notices that a little one hemiuterus is actually a bit blocked. And nobody notices that until they get to puberty and then suddenly and pain. Yeah, they're a horrible pain mm. with cyclic pain presenting with their undiagnosed hematometrocolpos. So how do you explain to people who haven't seen as many of these as you have um, why children or why girls with a cloaca, why they develop hydrocolpos and why is it that you need to do a vaginostomy versus a vesicostomy? I know that confuses many people. Yeah, right. Well, because when you've got a cloacal abnormality, the definition of a cloaca uh, is a common channel from, from Romans sewers. That's where the word comes from. And so the cloaca is the common channel um, from the early embryogenesis where the genital tract, the urinary tract and the gastrointestinal tract empty into a common space in the very early embryo. And normally the bowel separates from the, from, at the back from the urogenital tracts at the front 
but in a cloacal abnormality in a girl, they're often connected. And, but exactly how they're connected is quite variable, amazingly variable. As I said, the genital tract's often not fused. And it might be, there might be stenosis of the opening of the genital tract or tracts. So one or other of the vaginas might be obstructed. Or it might be that it just fills the common cloacal space with um, uh, fluid. It might urine go back in it, so we might we might have urine going back into the vagina or double vagina, or we might just have uh, maternal hormones triggering lots of mucus in the one or two vaginas, which can't come out because there's a degree of obstruction at the join. So. It's quite common for the attachment between the genital tract and the common space here, the cloacal space, bowel at the back half and urinary tract at the front. It's quite common for that to be a bit narrow. So the vagina or double vagina, one or other of them are obstructed. So then you have to empty the vagina because that might be so f filled with mucus or even urine sometimes that you totally distorts the anatomy of the pelvis. You can't see anything until you've emptied it. You can't even find the bladder sometimes. The other thing which is really important in cloacal abnormality, which relates to what's it look like when you go, when you do the laparotomy, when you might need to do a laparotomy to figure out what's happening here. The important thing to remember is that it's not like you imagine in the anatomy book where the urinary tract's at the front, the genital tract's in the middle, and the colon is the back. It's not like that in, in cloacal abnormalities. It's often twisted around. Mm -hmm. So the bowel's on one side, the, and the, the, bladders, the bladder might be at the back. The gentle tract mm -hmm. might be at the back instead of the colon, because it's often very twisted around. And as I said, there might be two genital tracts. So it's all twisted around. So it's quite common that the twisting rearranges the anatomy so much that you have to spend a fair bit of time trying to work out which structure is which, and it's really easy to get them muddled if you're not careful. Um, if, you, if you're expecting them to all be in alignment like in normal anatomy, um, you're making a mistake. You need to remember, think, it's never like that hardly. If you're like that, you're lucky, I reckon. Mostly it's not like that at all. Mm. And allowing for the fact that it might be, you might have two genital tracts and they might be all misaligned is part of the understanding of in, trying to interpret the anatomy because when you open the, the abdomen to do the laparotomy to figure out where's the bowel, where's the, where's the genital tract, we've got one or two, where's the urinary tract, is the urinary tract obstructed, yes or no? Um, um, you need to be prepared for the fact that it's often very hard to tell just by looking at it you need to find out by putting things inside it to work out what's mm. inside the cavity is the urine coming out this or not yeah. that's how you find out where the bladder is often and so how has the management of cloaca changed throughout your career what have been because oh, we never had uh, the penure operation when we first started mm. um, and that's made a big difference but the other thing is that is the recognition that when we're doing the surgery, because the genital tract's often bifid, one of the really important things in the, in the, in the neonatal surgery is to get the gynaecologist to be there.
which is now pretty standard. Mm. Um, I recognise that now you're doing that routinely, but it never used to be like that. After all, um, you know, I remember when Sonia got first appointed, okay, so she hasn't been at the Children's Hospital for that long. Mm. And so when I first started, we didn't have an adolescent gynaecologist who could say, well, where's the, where's the genital tract? Can we see, where's, is that a right uterus, is that a left uterus? Mm. We didn't have that. And so having somebody who can identify the, the genital part of the anatomy, um, because they've got a good understanding of that, is a huge step forward, I think. And then, of course, because in cloacal abnormalities in particular, we've got a bowel, genital and urinary tract anomaly. We need, we need, a sur we need surgery with expertise in all three areas mm. in a way that we never quite did before. We thought we could fix all of those things in one go, mm. when really that was being a bit stupid. We really needed the experts for all three of those areas because they need special expertise that the average doctor now doesn't have all in one person anymore. No. But that's probably better. Hmm. And what about the thinking that Douglas Stevens had towards cloacal management? And where do you think he, you know, he, he would have seen the Pena operation come in in the early 80s? He would have thought about this more than most people. Um, do you have a sense of how Douglas felt about the change in thinking around the operative approach to cloaca? I quite liked the Pena operation, um, but it, but it, like everything, you don't need this for everything. So, mm. but when it first started in the 80s, when the Pena operation first started, it was everywhere. But now, as I said, we're often doing a laparoscopic operation for things that are, don't need a full Pena operation, or we might just be doing an anoplasty or something on the surface of the perineum. Um, and we only need the Pena operation for a small percentage, but a cloacal uh, op uh, procedure is one where you really still need the Pena operation because mm. we need to really open the anatomy so you can make sure you've got all the anatomy correct. Because uh, as I said, when you open the back, you go through the back through a Pena operation, in a normal anorectal malformation, you know the first thing you find will be the back of the rectum. Mm. But in a cloacal abnormality, it won't be like that at all. Mm. It'll be the genital tract, probably, and occasionally the bladder. Mm. And if you pull the bladder to the surface for a pull-through, you're not doing very well you if know. you've got the wrong thing. So we need to make sure... So we need to not only recognise that the penure operation gives you the best view of the anatomy, but it does a, do a fairly significant disruption of the pelvic floor, which, if you put it back together again, might be OK. But if you didn't need that, then it's probably better not to. So we now have worked out ways to try and avoid doing a full penure operation unless we really need to. But that's cloacal abnormality, to me, is the one time where you really need this to make sure you can see exactly what's, what's happening so you're not trying to do something uh, which turns out to be totally incorrect because you've got the wrong structures. Mm. So that's the secret, I reckon. Yeah. Well, thank you again very much for your right. wisdom and thoughts today. And we look forward to continuing these sessions with Professor John Hudson. And next time we'll be continuing the discussion on some neonatal conditions.